Hello, this is Raymond, and you are listening to Global Yard. Global Yard, Global Yard, Global Yardy. Welcome to the Global Yardy Podcast. Global Yardy. Global Yardy. Captured colorful and powerful conversations on climate, culture, and sustainable living. Hello, this is Sami from Nigeria. It's good to have Global Yadi back. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Global Yadi. Thanks for joining. I am your host, Dana Lynn. And as I come into this new podcast episode, I'm really thinking how to process it because it's a bittersweet moment right now. Uh, If you've been following us all season, you know that we've been carrying you on this experience, exploring climate justice. And we've been doing that through a collaboration with young people for action on climate change and their collaboration and partnership with the Open Society Foundation. So they've launched this project, Building a Caribbean Youth Climate Justice Coalition. And we have been carrying the awareness component of this project through the podcast series, exploring what climate justice means for the Caribbean community and also trying to just amplify, you know, what the project aimed to do in terms of integrating climate justice into the advocacy framework for Caribbean communities and use and especially in a way that's kind of building participatory connections and network. And it's quite fitting that in the last episode of the series, we speak to the person who started it all. I'm joined by the Jamaican, a Jamaican eco-feminist, although I, I really, really meant what I said when I used the article, the, she's a founder of Girls Care, a feminist climate activist movement that aims to create a space and empower young women to advocate for gender justice in climate action. And I wanted to hold on to that because that's kind of why we're here today, looking at gender justice um, as it relates to climate action. She is a scholar activist at so many other affiliations, but a, a powerhouse and, of course, somebody who I'm blessed to say is my friend Aisha Constable joins us today for our podcast episode exploring gender justice in climate action. Aisha, welcome to Global Yadi. Hi, Dana. So happy to be here. And thank you for the very kind introduction. Thank you so much, Aisha. And fun fact, Aisha, I think this is like the second time on the podcast, the very first episode I even tried when we were together in Spain for COP25, Chile's COP25 at the time, exploring and the podcast and ourselves. We've grown so much um, over that time and, and certainly you know, very grateful that you you continue to be on this journey and, and the evolution as it relates to climate advocacy and gender advocacy, you know, that you've, you've blazed a trail and it's, it's just really a joy and an inspiration to witness. Now, the first question, because when we're talking about climate change matters, there's always these terms that we want to break down and to, to ensure that we tackle so we invite more people in the conversation. The word, it sounds nice <laughs> and it really has a lot of purpose behind it. And who is an eco-feminist? That's the first thing we want to tackle. So that was a couple of years ago. I'm probably moving away from the moniker. Um, 
but why 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 I was drawn to that um ideology because I think it's an ideology and an, an area of practice as well that um you know would first have caught me or, or got me to a place where I saw myself represented in that um framework so ecofeminists or ecofeminism is an ideology that sees women's place in the world um, as synonymous with how the natural environment is positioned. So we see women and the natural environment as the the same side or different sides of the same coin um, of variables that have been exploited by patriarchal processes for monetary gain. You know, so women over the years have been tasked tasked with the duty of reproduction, um, with the duty of um, sustaining homes and societies, and with very substandard um, remuneration for those duties. And in a similar way, um, sustaining whole economies and societies, you know, really carrying the burden um, of our societies in the way that the, the natural environment has been burdened as well, but it but also exp- in, a, in a way that exploits both the position of women, the role of the natural environment. And so it's a principle that allows us to do that analysis about how the natural environment is exploited, about how women are exploited for monetary gain. Oh, that's a very interesting concept. And and um, so and even in trying to understand, you know, the concept behind what it means to be an ecofeminist, it also highlights the importance of, of looking at gender justice, because all through the series, we've highlighted climate justice. And I'm certain for those who've been following us want to say thank you. And even if you're just joining, climate justice is really that kind of onion concept that has so many layers. So it's really the different interconnections of social justice and human rights at the center of climate action. And it's very fitting. There's no way we could do a series and not really talk about gender justice. And there's even some resistance. As much as there's this growing discourse around how women are affected differently in relation to climate change, you still have people asking why. So... For, for those asking the why, defining gender justice gender justice is important. How would you define uh, gender justice? Gender justice it stems from the, a similar framework as that of ecofeminism, uh, which forces us again to look at the distribution of power, access to resources, you know, in all the different areas realms where we exist. Um, to determine what imbalances historically allow for the disadvantaged ways in which women are represented. And and, and gender justice is, I, I would say, an area of, is a practice and it's an approach to, to doing this work. So, you know, we say, for example, we center gender justice in or actions towards or in our climate actions, for example. How do we create spaces for young men, young women, gender expansive identities to be included in this work that we're doing? Um, how do we, you know, create equity 
in, in, in the platforms that we're creating in the access to power and the access to information and the access to participation in decision making. And also, how do we then analyze the outcomes to ensure that what we have gained from these actions are also just outcomes? So it is, it is how we do the work, but it's also the outcome that we seek. Gender justice, especially in, in climate spaces, I believe, is particularly relevant because gender injustice, in my mind, was the catalyst for the climate crisis, right? I would like to believe that climate justice having its roots in patriarchal practices suggests to me that if we had more women in decision-making, which we did not have at the time when the climate crisis was spawned, if we had more women determining um, what was happening, you know, around the Industrial Revolution, around the processes of colonialism, um, certain decisions would not have been made. And 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 I know that's debatable and I'm, I'm up to debate it, but we see the ways in which patriarchal practices, patriarchal systems that drive capitalism have led to the crisis. And again, to me, suggesting that having men stand almost you know, solely as brokers of power and decision-making around these processes historically has gotten us to this point. That's indeed a, a very powerful placing of the issue. And we're here to kind of, you know, delve into that. And it, it, it leads me to, you know, also pick up, you do so many flavors or strains of advocacy from the literal perspective, um, the community um, mobilization, and also in an academic context. And I'm going to throw it, the ball is in your court, how you want to pull from the elements of your work, because at first I wanted to talk to you about the scholarly angle to say what are some of the insights from your work and how does that connect with the realities of the gender climate intersection, or if you want to talk about the community-based approaches and, and how has that amplified or made more apparent some of the, you know, existing realities for us in the Caribbean. And that's why we're doing this, talking about the Caribbean context as well. The scholarly part is important. Um, I would say that personally, what I have gleaned from the kind of academic conversations is the, the framing, the big picture thinking, the, the theories that underpin the, the perceptions and the practice, you know, the, the political thinking, the, the ideas of and, and praxis of feminism and colonialism and the intersections, even, you know, the, the kind of, I don't, I don't want to call them slander that now exists, but the terms that have now become commonplace when we have these conversations, you know, the intersectionality, the radical reimaginations. I have gleaned the, the, the kind of framing, the framework within which these conversations are had. I've, I've grown to understand that. I've grown to understand the political ecology that underpins climate and, and ecofeminism and, and, and the crisis and the emergency that we're now dealing with. But I also have my own struggles with the scholarly part of this process, um, because for so long, the scholarly conversations, the scholarly outputs were thought to be the only valid outputs, the only valid 
science to inform this work. And there was no space and place created for what we call traditional ideas, um, indigenous ideas around gender, around climate, around adaptation. And the scholarly work also has its roots in very deeply colonial principles right? And we have seen in recent times where many institutions have been actively working on the surface to remove themselves from or to kind of decolonize, they would call it. So they have, you know, gone as far as to um, rename buildings that were um, previously named after known slave owners. Um, They've gone as far as to challenge some of the narratives that came out from some of the known, you know, academics. But then we see, for example, more recently, like in the U.S., where they have rolled back on affirmative action. So, yeah, we've gained some ground and we've lost a lot of ground. You know, it's one of those cases where one step forward and and several steps back. Um, But that's just connecting it to to something more mainstream and current. But, But that, again, is part of why I struggle with or struggled with it. But that... I've struggled. I don't think I struggle so much anymore because now I understand my place and I understand the value of the scholarly space, the academics, but I also see great value in the community-based ideas, the indigenous practices, the indigenous knowledge. And I see where there is space for overlaps and I see where in those gray areas, there's room for, you know, strengthening um, the solidarity and the strengthening the learning between the parties in these spaces. We talk a lot about, you know, now about plurality of knowledge, co-creation of knowledge, recognizing that the only truth is not the scientific knowledge. And more, I think more than ever in the work that we're doing in the region as as feminist activists, as climate activists, we recognize that the science has its place, you know, all the work that is put out by the IPCC and all of these, that is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Justice, um, Climate Change rather, <laughs> all of these high-level places where research is done and, and, and the documentation of it. But we also, through our activism, have created channels for the integration and the validation of indigenous knowledge, indigenous ideas. And I, th- I think to, to their credit as well, scientists are now using some of the local knowledge to inform the work that they're doing. And in many instances are also promoting these practices as good practices, as be- best practices for adaptation and resilience building. Oh, such a powerful plating um, of, of, you know, these issues and, and the what would I say, the antecedents or the things that came before that underscore how important this work is. Um, So as we're distilling the importance of gender justice in climate action, and certainly from a Caribbean standpoint, I want to ask you, you know, if you could talk to us more about some of the challenges that women face in the Caribbean um, due to climate change or, or, Yeah, take it from the angle of why is gender justice work particularly important uh, for the Caribbean community? I think very often when we talk about climate change or the gender dimensions of climate change, you know, people anticipate that we're going to talk about the 
ways in which climate change specifically targets women, you know, like women as a demographic have these very unique experiences because they're women, right? And and sometimes that is where, or, or because of that assumption of, of the context of the conversation, we get this pushback, you know, and people say, but you, people are people, everybody affected the same way. More importantly, what we're trying to, to help persons understand around this conversation of gender and climate change is that the ways in which women are affected or our gender diverse groups are affected are based on the ways in which social, economic, and political variables exacerbate or increase the exposure, increase the vulnerability of, 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 of these groups. And so understanding with the ways in which women are impacted by climate cannot happen without also addressing the various cross-cutting factors that increase women's vulnerability. So we have to first talk about, for example, in the Caribbean context, the, the wage gap. You know, the fact that women still earn less than men. We have to talk about, for example, the fact that gender-based violence is such a thing, a prominent thing um, that women experience, the, the high levels of domestic violence to which women are exposed. We have to also consider the disparity in land ownership, for example. So when we talk about you know, women in the agricultural sector, why are they more at risk? Um, it's because they don't own land in, in the same ways that men do. It's because they can't access credit from financial institutions in the, in the ways that men do because they don't have the collateral. Because if you don't have land, you can't, you know. The other thing is we have to also explore the disparity in access to power and decision-making. People like to, you know, highlight the stats in the Caribbean of the vast percentage of women in middle management. And we go back to, okay, but how many women do we see in parliament across the Caribbean? What do those numbers look like? You know, who still, for the large part, for the most part, make decisions about these outcomes. And in, in, in many instances, it, you know, we're, we're forced to acknowledge that it's men. So it is, again, understanding the various disparities, the various inequalities and inequities that expose and enhance women's vulnerability to climate change. So these, I would say, are the kind of very immediate factors or, or inequalities that come to mind and that in the Caribbean context increase women's vulnerability. So again, you know, we see where when a disaster hits, climate-induced disaster, um, for example, who is going to have savings to fall back on? Who is going to, you know, who leads or heads the larger households where food insecurity becomes more of an issue? Single mothers in that instance, you know, who are the ones who are going to be able to access or, or buy backup um, energy systems so that in times, again, of power outages or disruptions, your household has energy access, you know, so those are the things that we want people to contend with and begin to appreciate about why it is so important to understand the ways in which women have been historically disadvantaged. And, and why we also ha have to be so deliberate about shifting that balance of power, shifting that balance of access, and shifting that balance of vulnerability 
to, to ensure that we put women on pretty much equal footing. And I, and I don't want to, and I, I, I don't like when the conversation becomes mired in, you know, male marginalization and women and men, women are doing better than men. And we have higher numbers of women graduating from school. That to me is a case of missing the forest for the trees, because ultimately across all the islands in the Caribbean, despite those statistics being true, it does not change the fact that power continues to be the domain of men. And, and that is by, you know, far and large, the, 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 the core of the feminist analysis that we try to purport in our work, the power distribution, who has power, who is more likely to abuse that power. And then what does that mean for those who do not have access to similar levels of power? All that you just said right now is, is just a literal demonstration of, of your involvement in this work. And there was something you said earlier that, you know, if we're still questioning the intersection of gender justice and climate action or or why we push for gender justice, it's, it's what you said about empowering women to make decisions about our outcomes. And, you know, that would have very different meaning in, in our current society if, if that becomes more commonplace and more prevalent. And in particular, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you spoke about shifting power, shifting access and shifting vulnerabilities. I don't think there is any limit to how much this can be, how much this can be underscored. Um, I like how we're transitioning in the conversation. You know, we, we've had, of course, to really spotlight the Caribbean reality and the Caribbean context. But I also want to travel a little bit, Aisha, because you're so much involved, you know, You've, you have a strong network and you're affiliated with lots of international organizations as well in terms of, you know, your work with Frida, the Young Feminist Fund, um, I think Global Fund for Women and, and others, you know. And the reason I'm bringing this up is also, yes, we are Caribbean mobilization, but is there any way in how these international experiences have impacted how and I'm not saying it's supposed to be an influence, you know, but I, I just wanted to see, you know, what parallel there is in terms of connecting with, with global feminist movements and what it means for our work um, and our approach in the Caribbean. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've had the privilege of working very closely with movements in the Pacific um, and in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I'm privy to the work that is being led in parts of Latin America and North America as well. One thing is 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 certain in in all of those spaces at least in in my view the the voices of those groups tend to be a lot louder. The level of organization by collectives and movements in the Pacific, for example, is, is way advanced. Um, and because of that, they have a lot more presence. You know, they, they are able to access a lot more resources as well. And that to me speaks to the value of organizing, of, you know, being unified in, in, in our demands, in our asks, I think in the Caribbean, Caribbean is under-resourced. That's one of the things that we know. Do you think we lack that organization? 
yeah, I think we lack the that level of organization in the Caribbean. We have a lot of individual activists and groups. We have a few collectives that work together on, on you know, select projects, but we don't have formidable movements in place and movements that have come together around the issues of climate justice, for example, or feminist organizing, or, you know, the, the, the kind of broader causes around environmental conservation, any of that stuff. You know, we can, I think we can all think of the one-off organizations who have uh, done very well, who have made a name for themselves, uh, you know, kind of eked out a space, and so have been able to access the resources that are available. So comparing our reality to the Pacific, for example, to places like Sub-Saharan Africa, I'm forced to acknowledge that um, we are certainly less organized. Groups work in, yeah, individually or in much smaller collectives. So one of the things I, I wanted to ask Aisha, as you've already unpacked so much, and I do think it came out in several of your responses. But to just ask you directly, when we think about women and girls, because a lot of people say that when it comes to the climate action, it's really the irony is that it, it really feels to be female driven, you know, women led, youth led, and and um, it, it's like I said, it's an irony considering the, the historical context of what we're saying, advocating for that shift as it relates to power and access. And that's something that we continue to struggle with. But how if you are to inspire other women to join this movement from your experience, and knowledge of what is possible. How can women and girls facilitate transformative responses to climate change? Before I get to the transformative approaches, let me point out that the what you just highlighted in terms of the unfair burden, I would call it, no, this responsibility that is placed on women and girls and other minority gender identities and groups to fix the crisis, to find solutions to the crisis, is also, in my mind, a part of the injustice of this conversation. It's very much akin to the conversation that we have around mitigation, for example, and the unfair responsibility now being placed on developed countries, some people would say developing countries rather, to mitigate, to reduce, you know, emissions, carbon emissions in an effort to save, save earth. Whereas historically developed countries, global North countries have emitted very freely into the atmosphere in, in an effort to grow their economies have, and has resulted in massive economic growth and, and wealth accrual in these countries. And, while developing countries have remained poor. And so there are many persons who, you know, are very opposed to the ideas now perpetuated in, for example, the Climate Convention, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, around the actions that developing countries need to take. It's part of the reason why countries like Guyana 
are pursuing oil extraction in 2023 in light of the growing climate crisis because there are proponents of this economic development approach in Guyana that say, how dare Global North countries tell us what to do when they have had their time, they had their freedom and, and gained so much from it. And we are now trying to get our, our due through this resource that we now have readily available. But that, again, is just making the connection between this global this conversation around the global injustice and the dynamics around access and power again between global North and, and global South countries and the responsibility uh, being placed on us. And in a similar fashion, the responsibility that young women and girls have taken on to solve this crisis while the patriarchal forces continue to gain from capitalism. I don't think there's any thing to be said or there's any need to encourage young women and girls to become any more active. I think it's almost an instinctive, intuitive drive uh, for young women and girls to to see something and do something. Um, I think it's, um, and and again, it might be linked to the whole perception of the role of women and girls and how we've been socialized and what people call maternal instinct, which some people shun, and 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 the, the responsibility that we see, in some of us at least see, to protect this earth for our children and, you know, their descendants. And in a way that I don't think, and again, not a blanket statement, but in, in a way in which I don't think men or many men are instinctively inclined to think. So that responsibility that we're seeing in young women and girls, not just in the Caribbean again, but across the world, has led us to this place where I would say women and young women and girls have become the face of climate action um, globally. And I think all of us can think of off the top of our heads at least two or three young women who have, you know, been the, the the mouthpieces, the faces, the the ones lobbying actively, demanding action, demanding fair governance around climate globally. And maybe we struggle to think of young men who show up in the same way. I've had conversations with young women about why, you know, they, they feel so driven to do this and, and conversations as well about why young men are not as compelled to assume this responsibility. And very often, you know, it points back to the ideas around ambition and, and, and success which are often measured in based on material gain and financial gain. And one of the things that people don't acknowledge very often is that this work of activism and advocacy that is being led by young men and girls is often unpaid work. And it's a part of the justice conversation again. You know, it's 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 some form of exploitation. I would say that the, there's not very often there's not a lot of pushback um there's not a lot of complaining about this because for many as many of us in the space we see it as a responsibility a moral responsibility of sorts and so that is the the compulsion that we have you know and not this drive to to gain 
wealth from this work. Like we, we see it as a, a responsibility that we have as part of, you know, the intergenerational equity dynamics. How do we preserve this, this earth for generations to come? And, you know, in keeping with that, the transformative action that young women are leading, because I don't think there's any question um, as to whether or not, you know, that that, that is happening. The, the only question is, to what extent are the forces, and, and more often than not, the patriarchal forces that control decision-making, that control access, are what, to what extent are they willing to, to give to create some some room and space for this change to happen. My fear is that, you know, just in, in, in the same way that we see some global North Poles just kind of pushing and, 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 and pushing or pushing harder to maintain that hold on power in the face of what some of them see as kind of a, a, a threat and a, a need now to relinquish power because of this crisis because i think that that's a part of it too some countries feel as though because of this crisis and because of the demands being placed on them they're being asked to relinquish some amount of power and with that you'll always have pushback because nobody who controls means and controls power wants to give up any of that you know we talk very often about people all of us being in the same boat or being in the same ocean but in different boats when it comes on to climate change and the reality is that you know, some of us in, in, in yachts and some of us in, in dinghies and, you know, in the, the threat of the climate crisis does not make some of these powers and, 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 and wealthy individuals any keener on normalizing this playing field if we make all of we in a dinghy or one up from, no, peop, no, no. You know, and so that that's part of the fear. How much do I have to give up? And, you know, again, going back to the transformative, the gender transformative part, the, the gender trans, the actions that are being led by the, the, the feminist advocates and the girl activists are potentially transformative if there is space for that transformation to happen but we still see where the spaces that would that we would need to get into uh, to breach um are being controls are being tightened to ensure that access is not granted and so there are limits to the extent that those actions will transform because the transformation that is being sought again, is transformation of the entire system. We talk about systems change. is a transformation of the system to ensure more equal distribution of resources, to ensure more equal distribution of power, to ensure that, you know, access and, and, and rights and are not limited to persons of one color or race or from one class. And again, if persons are not open to that idea of relinquishing, are not open to the idea of creating space for everybody to thrive and are so keen on maintaining that one up, then, then this will not happen because those forces still control the, 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 the assets and the you know channels to make that change happen. So we could have 
preach all we want and we could have marched all we want, you know. And so a part of what we we talk about and, and we strive for in this work is to appeal to people's just consciousness and 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 heart and to it's beyond logic i would say because logic alone in this conversation if if you explain to everybody that equity in in, in the context of the climate crisis means you know that we all you know just downgrade from yachts to dinghies so that everybody can have a little dinghy and we'd be cool and airy out there on the high seas that logic would not appeal to anyone, right? Um, and so a big part of our conversation is how do we then appeal to people's humanity and sense of fairness and what is right or wrong? I don't know if we'll be able to compel people. Some people are beyond that 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 line of thinking as well. But But I believe that that's part of where we we seek or that's where we seek to take the conversation in parts because we recognize that boiling it down to simple you know the metrics of wealth and 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 figures is 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 going to cause some people to hold on even more firmly to to, to what they have there's so much more to explore stay tuned for the second half of this interview listening global yadi remember to like share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at global yadi to learn more about the caribbean youth climate justice coalition follow ypacja on instagram and twitter that's ypacja 